Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to this special series on third world nationalism on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Megu. I also host my own podcasts, Independent Thought and Freedom, and also a story club, Global Politics and Global Cultures. In the wake of a rise in nationalism around the world and its general condemnation by liberals and the left, in addition to the rise of China and Russia, we have put together this series on third world nationalism to nuance the present discourse on nationalism, to note its centrality to anti-imperial, anti-colonial politics around the world, the reconfiguration of global power, and its inextricability from mainstream politics in Africa, Asia, Latin America, and the Caribbean. Today, my guest is James Siegmeier, author of Latin American Nationalism, Identity in a Globalizing World, published by Bloomsbury Academic in 2017. Welcome, James. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, I'm joining uh, you from Trinidad and Tobago here in the Caribbean, uh, sometimes considered part of Latin America, sometimes not. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, and, and how about yourself? Where are you joining us from? I'm in Morgantown, uh, West Virginia, in the chilly oh. mountains of uh, the northern part of the United States. <laughs> okay. <laughs> nice, nice. Well, we like to start off our interviews normally by asking our guests to give a little bit of background about themselves and what got you interested in your subject, in this case, Latin American nationalism. Uh, Well, I entered graduate school about 35 years ago, a long time ago, and uh, uh, I was interested in U.S.-Latin American relations, especially uh, during the Cold War. And uh, I was focusing in the 1950s, and most of the interpretations uh, at that time said the United States was uh, uh, obsessively concerned with uh, suppressing communism uh, during the Cold War, and especially uh, in the 1950s. And my attitude was, well, yeah, certainly that's true, but we we need to dig a little bit deeper. We need to look at, at, uh, uh, I think, a more profound factors, more profound changes going on in Latin America uh, in the 1940s and 1950s. And I, I hinged upon the idea of economic nationalism, that, that uh, the United States was certainly afraid of communism, but they were actually more afraid of this deeper movement, more long term, uh, you know, going back to the very beginning of, of the Latin American national period in the 19th century, uh, in which the Latin American nations wanted to uh, diversify their economies. They wanted to industrialize. Uh, and they wanted to be not totally self-sufficient, but less subject to the vagarities of international markets. So most Latin American countries at that time, and still today, uh, are dependent on exporting primary products, whether they're valuable metals, agricultural products. Uh, certainly, industrialization has occurred in the last you know two or three decades at a rapid rate. But many countries are still dependent economies, and they want to become uh, less dependent. Uh, the United States, however, had a different vision, and I would argue still has a different vision. 
uh, in the United States, uh, uh, most of the political leadership, maybe not uh, 100%, but but most of it uh, is uh, very focused on the idea of free markets and open trading zones. That, that will, uh, if you open up borders to trade investment, private sector trade investment, uh, wherever it comes from, it doesn't matter. Uh, that's going to jumpstart the economies uh, of the of Latin America and the third world. Uh, and this sort of free economic trade zone uh, is a very deeply held vision on the part of the United States. And U.S. officials didn't take too kindly to the fact that Latin Americans wanted to, uh, shall we say, control part of their economic destiny, not not the whole thing. The economic nationalists wanted to control certain key sectors, dynamic sectors of the economy, uh, and they wanted to, like I said, promote policies uh, to diversify their economies uh, and, um, and industrialize. And, and therein lies the rub. There was the conflict uh, that I saw uh, in the 1950s, but I think we could carry that argument up you know, to the 60s, the 70s, and even beyond. Well, that's interesting. And uh, you said 35 years ago, so that yeah. was like mid-80s? Mid-80s, right, yes. So that would be like when Central America, so you it would yes. be like the, the tail end of the Sandinistas, yes, the yeah, yeah, yeah. FMLN would have been in yeah, El Salvador. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and yeah, I'm, glad you, yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that, Dr. Mangu, because that uh, is another reason I got interested uh, in this field. I entered graduate school just at the time the Iran-Contra scandal was breaking. Yeah. <laughs> it's, if you remember, the, the Reagan administration was illegally selling uh, weapons to terrorists supporting Iran, a country the United States didn't have diplomatic relations with and had very very contentious relations with in order to provoke uh, or, or encourage Iran uh, to uh, – use its influence uh, with Hezbollah and other radical groups in the Middle East to free American and British hostages. And this was driven by domestic politics. The Reagan administration wanted uh, the hostages to be freed and, and uh, you know, walk down those uh, plains triumphantly in United States soil just before the 1986 uh, midterm elections. Uh, and indeed, uh, some of the hostages were freed, but then, of course, the scandal broke. And uh, I became fascinated in U.S. Uh, Latin American relations around that time, although my interest shifted away from Central America, um, more to South America, uh, not not for any other reason that I simply found uh, you know South America more more in line with my own personal interest than than Central America. But Central America and U.S. the U.S. Uh, I would say the U.S. inspired or caused crisis in Central America in the 1980s definitely was something that got me into. Uh, what I'm doing today. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm probably just a little bit younger than you. I was born in 68. Uh-huh. Yes. So, um, but I was profoundly influenced by that. And I, I was in a program called International Development Studies at the uh, University yes. of Toronto. Yeah. And uh, we had a, a placement for one year in a third world country. And my aim was to get to El Salvador. And ah, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And there's another, another uh, bit of overlap there, too, is that I was very interested in economic development as well. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, basically, you know, 35 years ago, I was when I was making the decision to go to graduate school, I had to decide, of course, where I'm going to go to graduate school. And, and I was sort of on the fence between doing development studies or doing development economics mm -hmm. or going into history and looking at the history of economic development. And, yeah. and, I, and I decided on the latter for a number of reasons. So Right, right. Well, that, that's that's very interesting. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think it's, um, it's, it's actually one of the purposes behind uh, that uh, inspired me and the New Books Network to put together this series, because I think that a lot of developments in the world, especially the rise of China, Right. It yes. only be understood within 
this discourse right. of you know where you know at that time it would be like the new international economic order right. and right. like right. Yes, exactly. and Unido yeah. And, yeah. And, and changing the IMF and and the right. and the, the P5 and and, yeah. and and changing the whole sort of you know imperial structure of of international politics uh, financial agency, but that seems to be totally missing from the uh, discourse on what's happening in the world. And I, I think, you know, and especially uh, as you say, and, and as you point out in your book, the, you know, your focus on economic nationalism, that is actually one of the distinctive things about Latin American yeah. nationalism, yeah. different from African and Asian. Right. Can you expand on that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the 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 main difference, uh, or sort of deeply historical difference, I, th- I think you could say, is that in Latin America, political independence came in the early 19th century, uh, whereas political independence in Asia and in Africa, not not for all of the countries, but for nearly all of them, uh, came in the mid 20th century. Uh, so in Latin America, there was a large gap between at least nominal political independence and economic and social development. Whereas the other parts of the third world, Asia and Africa, political dependence, uh, economic uh, independence, social development were all kind of uh, projects that were happening at the same time. So they were all intertwined and mixed together. And some would say much more complicated, much more interesting and much more hard to understand. (laughs) Whereas in Latin America, the trajectories are different. Uh, Political first and then economic and social later, which I personally found to be quite interesting because how do you explain that gap? And then how do you explain the sort of burst of interest in economic uh, and social nationalism, you might say, uh, in the mid-20th century? Yeah, I I want to explore that uh, a little more. But l- let yeah. me ask you then, um, your subtitle of the book is Identity right. in a Globalizing World, yeah. Yeah. which is um, – which is kind of you know it's not politics, it's not economics. Right. So that's interesting. Right. Why why did you take uh, that angle? Right. Well, uh, I guess you could say in some ways it was just uh, in, in the air or uh, in the discourse. You know, those identity studies have been have been a really important part of the the field of history. You know, going back to the nineteen seventies, nineteen eighties. I think the identity studies have been focused very much on, on Europe and the United States and the global north, you might say. Whereas mm-hmm. there's been less attention. Some, you know, some some scholars, of course, have uh, looked at identity formation or identity in in the developing world, of course. Uh, but in, in the United States uh, and and in Europe and the global north, you might say, there's been less uh, less interest on that. Less interest in that. H- however, another thing that's going on is that uh, you know I wanted to look at globalization and nationalism. I mean, wanted to look at the intersection of those two major forces in the world today, and then uh, you know what, what's the bridge? <laughs> you know what's the connection? And there's a number of ways you can do it, uh, but I found identity to be sort of the most um, easy to get my 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 head around. <laughs> the, the easiest okay. to sort of uh, uh, use as an analytic category, you might say, because with globalization uh, and nationalism, you have in a sense layers of uh, of identity. In fact, uh, if I had uh, could do it over again, I might actually change the subtitle to sort of layers of identity um, in a globalizing world because you have national identity, uh, you have global identities, and you also have a, a local, um, you know, a region-based identities, uh, racial identities, uh, gender identities. And so uh, I, I found identity to be, a, 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 for lack of a better word, sort of a useful tool of understanding the intersection of nationalism and, and globalization. All right. Well, um, 
I mean, it's something you explore uh, throughout your book. Yeah. But uh, uh, so, I mean, it might be difficult to just uh, encapsulate it in a in a little yeah. soundbite. But you know, if if you were to just briefly discuss, you know, so what is the relationship between globalization and nationalism in Latin America? Uh, well, I mean, it comes down to. Uh, uh, Basically, you know, so national identity uh, experienced a burst of, of interest in the 19th century right after the, 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 the countries of Latin America broke away from, from Portugal and from Spain uh, and other countries. Uh, certainly globalization was a factor then uh, because Latin America emerged and the globalization goes back to the 15th, uh, 14th to 15th century. But then with the national identity, once, once it gets formed – uh, pretty solidly by the early 20th century, then globalization takes off uh, in, a, in a much more forceful way, you might say. And so then the Latin Americans have to sort of merge the, the national identity and the global identity. And of course, it depends a lot on you know whether you're living in a port city or near a coast where you're subject to more global influences, or wh- whether if you're in a, a smaller country, which is very dependent on the export of one product, uh, you know, Bolivia for metals, for example, or uh, islands in the Caribbean. Caribbean for, uh, with regard to sugar, for example, uh, then a globalization is going to have a much bigger impact on you know, your reality and even your identity. Right. And um, another thing is that uh, y- you did sort of allude to it earlier uh, just now, but uh, you speak about you know that there are many nationalisms in Latin right. America, yeah. Yeah. political elites of indigenous peoples, right. of the urban, middle, and working classes, and yeah. that's a very important uh, point right. to make. Can right. you elaborate a bit on it? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the starting point uh, is. Uh, what I call a top-down nationalism, and I, I don't, have not found too many authors that have used that, but but I think that's a starting point uh, for nearly all Latin American countries because the Latin American uh, elites uh, in the early 19th century, which led the effort to to break away from the imperial. Uh, nations of Spain and Portugal uh, realized quickly that uh, they they wanted to impose, or they felt they needed to impose their idea of European nationalism on uh, you know as many quarters of the countries as they could uh, to create a sort of national unity on their terms. But then, uh, almost as quickly as uh, this top-down nationalism was imposed or as the process unfolded, you have resistance based on uh, localities or regions of the individual countries. You have resistance based uh, on racial or ethnic categories, uh, indigenous nationalism or Afro-Latin uh, American uh, nationalism. And then when you get up to the 20th century with urbanization, uh, you have a, a you might, what you might call another twist on nationalism, uh, which is populism. Uh, especially of uh, in Argentina and Chile, uh, in Bolivia, um, and uh, many other many parts of Central America, this this populism is of the urban working and middle classes, basically saying you know to the elites who who largely control the political system up to uh, World War II, you know no longer are uh, you sort of uh, you know land based oligarchs you know, going to call the shots for, you know, what, what, for urban Latin America, urban Latin Americans need better roads, better schools, uh, more sort of economic development, uh, urban economic development, basic public services. Uh, and also from the point of view of, of, uh, indigenous people and Afro Latin Americans, basic civil, uh, and human rights. And so this populism, uh, in the mid 20th century, uh, I would argue is a continuation of nationalism, but with a different twist. 
Right. And it's very interesting with the kind of nationalism in Europe and uh, North America today. Well, the United States in particular, not really Canada. But um, yeah, uh, yeah. in terms of it, it is a, a, the populist revolt is kind of middle and working class. But right, it's exactly. not against the landed aristocracy. Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of it's similar in some ways and very different yeah. in, in other ways. Right. Yeah. Right. Can yeah. You elaborate on that. Yeah, no, uh, that's one thing. If I uh, could uh, write another edition of my book, I think I would emphasize uh, more clearly the differences between nationalism in Latin America versus uh, Europe and the United States today, where, of course, it is uh, blossoming. But uh, it seems like in Europe and the United States, to me, nearly all nationalists are on the right politically. Not all, but but it's nationalism in Europe and in North America, maybe not Canada, but the United States, is a... Uh, um, a conservative nationalism, whereas in Latin America you have both uh, what I call left wing nationalism, which I focus on in my book, but there is a conservative nationalism as well. The mm-hmm. you know, uh, left wing nationalism in Latin America is especially concerned with outside forces, you know, powerful countries trying to impose neo colonial uh, control, uh, you know, or ownership of, of key uh, sectors of the, of, of the economy, right? But conservative nationalism in Latin America is uh, is is very prominent, uh, especially once you get to the 1960s and 1970s, uh, in which there's a fear of many Latin Americans of of all social classes, but more middle and upper class, that you know left wing nationalism has gone too far. You know, it's too radical, uh, and it's being supported by communism, right? Yeah. And so conservative nationalism, you know, really comes to the fore in. Uh, in, uh, in Latin America, the 1960s to 1970s. Uh, but I wish I'd emphasize a little bit more in my book that the, the nationalism in Latin America, perhaps because Latin America is such a complex area racially, geographically, in terms of you know, the backgrounds of immigrants, uh, left-wing and, and right-wing nationalism are kind of fighting it out, whereas nationalism uh, in, in the United States and Europe seems to go from you know, a period of dormancy and then becomes conservative once you have an immigrant crisis, which happens in, in the 21st century. Uh, and then perhaps uh, it, it will diminish down, you know, later on, uh, become dormant again, and then it will pop up again. Right, right. You know, I mean, I've been, uh, I, I've been really fascinated by Latin American nationalism in a number mm-hmm. of ways. Being in the Caribbean, yeah. we're so yeah. close, but we're in the English-speaking Caribbean, so we're so distant as well. Because right. you know, although you know Venezuela is like seven miles away, yeah. we can right. see it. From the <laughs> yeah. Right, New, New York is closer. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. Yes, no, exactly, <laughs> exactly, um, yeah. Yeah, you know, so it, it's like another world because because it's Spanish speaking, and we were, you know, British colonies, and right. uh, you know, there there was a there was this kind of saying that we used to have in the early twentieth century before we we became independent, when people used to act very anarchically, uh, <laughs> and they and they'd say, um, "What do you think this is? A republic? <laughs> we think the right. Bolivarian Republic, you know? <laughs> right? Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, Venezuela." And um, so, yeah, like, so, so, you know, and even when we became independent in the mid 60s, you know, just like Africa, you know, the the British and French Empire decolonization as opposed to the Spanish Empire, um, the mid mid 20th century. So, and and our populations are African and in Trinidad, Guyana and Suriname, Indian as well. So, so we have a, a lot of those connections. But then again, because we're in Latin America, in the shadow of the United States, right. so and we're covered by you know UN ECLAC and stuff like that, and and mm-hmm. and and so we have this strong economic nationalism discourse, uh, which which I am a 
part of you know uh, in in intellectual and political organizations and whatnot a long history of that so mm-hmm. so it's, it's kind of like you know between and and it's it's always so fascinating to me uh, you know that latin american nationalism was really part of the same kind of enlightenment right. european nationalism right, right. Exactly. in the 18th century on, yeah. but as you say it's kind of excluded and and marginalized and not really looked at like if you think of benedict anderson he had a little yeah. section in right. a chapter right. somewhere yeah. not a couple paragraphs on creole yeah. nationalism yeah. But, you know but he basically ignores it right. and and then later a subaltern and post-colonial studies, right, as you say, right. it's 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 uh, excluded. Then in the '90s, when Eastern European nationalism and post-communist, right. na- yeah. again, the Latin American nationalism right. is excluded. Right. Yeah. And so I I'd, I'd like you to uh, share your reflections on that distinctiveness, yet you know. Uh, exclusion and and we, we don't really uh, the rest of the world doesn't really take it seriously or look at it uh, deeply enough. Right. Yeah. No. I think you you put it very well and very very succinctly and very clearly about uh, you know the trends of nationalism in, in the third world and the subaltern studies boom of the post Cold War world and uh, Latin American nationalism nationalism was sort of. Uh, uh, dormant or ignored. Uh, and I remember when I was in graduate school in my early years as an academic, I was talking about this and a lot of people were wondering what I was talking about and why, why should they care about it? Um, yeah. But I think what really changed the game for Latin American nationalism or Latin American nationalists uh, was what uh, a lot of observers call the the pink tide of the 21st century uh, in mm-hmm. in South America in particular, but, but in other parts of Latin America, the Caribbean as well. And this is largely a response to neoliberalism. So starting in the 1980s, uh, the sort of U.S. and European Global North vision for the third world of, you know, open economies, free trade and investment uh, was agreed to by many of the of the subaltern nations, not all, but many of them. And mm-hmm. uh, this provoked a reaction. Uh, and I think the, the left-wing reaction uh, was helped along by the fact that communism had fallen, and so the the left in Latin America was no longer tainted, as as is the case around the world, no longer tainted with sort of the Stalinist Soviet um, brush, you might say. Uh, they could say, you know, we're socialists, we're leftists, we're not communists. We don't believe in the sort of communist view of history and the communist world domination. We believe in a better life for the working classes, the poor of our country, and this countries. And this really took off in the early 21st century with nearly every South American nation. Uh, being left or center left, uh, and many in, in Central America and the Caribbean uh, as well, mm-hmm. and so I think that, uh, for lack of a better word, that sort of uh, uh, forced the world to recognize that Latin American nationalism was real. The Latin American nationalists were standing up and speaking very clearly, such as Chavez in Venezuela, Correa mm-hmm. in Ecuador, and Morales in Bolivia, but there's others as well, Lula in Brazil, and you know you could name Kirchner in Argentina, and, and you know many around the the, the hemisphere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, would you say that there is a, a kind of story of Latin American nationalism? You've kind of alluded to it where you yeah. know you have the political first yeah. and then sort of the economic. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, and Latin America really did lead, I think, a lot yeah. in, in both fields, if you, right. yeah, if you right. really think about it. Yeah. 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 So I think that uh, I don't want it to be sort of too lockstep, lockstep a narrative, but I think that you've, you've got the, the first two parts. I mean, certainly political and then economic and then later on sort of social and cultural. And I think once you get into the 21st century, uh, cultural nationalism, even though it's been there all along, uh, becomes 
uh, more prominent. And part of this is because uh, of instant communications with the internet and satellite uh, uh, technology. People can see, you know, the wonder of Latin American soccer all around the world. Uh, Latin American foods become popular all around the world. Latin American music. Uh, you know, Shakira in, in, uh, in Colombia, but there's a ton of other ones, uh, becomes popular all around the world. And so I think that cultural nationalism and globalization, that, that intersection is perhaps the easiest to understand um, of, of all the different sort of connections you can make between nationalism and, and globalization. Uh, take, take nationalism plus uh, instant communications and sort of ease of access to the internet uh, and, and satellite television, and you have a sort of globalized Latin American, Latin American culture. Yeah, um, I, I'd like you to, to elaborate a bit on, on what you, the kind of question that, that you said you thought about yourself, about the kind of, um, uh, I don't know if we want to call it a delay period or right. between the political right. and the economic, you know, because yeah. you had you know, Simon Bolivar and the Haitian right. Revolution, very, very important things. And right. I myself, I'm, I'm very hazy on the Spanish decolonization Right. You know, I know you had Bali because it was New Spain. Yeah. You know, you didn't have Venezuela and Uruguay and Paraguay, as far as I'm aware. Yeah. But they broke up into small uh, Colombia and, and smaller right. parts in Central America. And so, um, and, and I think you know, Britain and perhaps the United States had had a some role to play. Right. I know the capture of Trinidad, I think, was yeah. related yeah. Yeah. Um, to that. So yeah, so if if you could, uh, you know, I guess. Describe a bit about that Spanish decolonization yeah. process and, and, and how it's, you know, different and may not quite be understood. And then that kind of, I guess, follow period, if you want to put it that right, way. And right, sort yeah. of what awoke the economic nationalism. Yeah, no, I think this is a really important uh, part of the story, which um, uh, hasn't been um, uh, told um too many times, or at least that systematically in the existing literature. So when I had a chance to to write this book, I, I was I felt privileged and lucky to be able to sort of explore these ideas uh, because I don't think too many people had really tried to look at it as a sort of kind of coherent whole. And my mm -hmm. my work sort of like a first step in that process. But I mean the 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 starting point is with the the Spanish decolonization in Latin America. It was incredibly chaotic uh, and violent. Um, compared to uh, revolutions in many other parts of the country, uh, of the world. Now, obviously, the French Revolution, Russian Revolution, very bloody, and Chinese as well. But uh, in Latin America, because of the geography, because of the diversity of the peoples, uh, because of how long the, the Wars for Revolution took, and then after the Wars for Revolution settled, as it were, uh, Bolivar tried uh, his sort of confederation of uh, Gran Colombia and the northern tier of South America, uh, that fall, uh, was falling apart before he died and then and then fell apart. Uh, and also, I think, uh, as you alluded to in the latter part of your question, it's really important to, to keep in mind that as, you know, the political situation sort of finally sorts itself out in the late 19th century, you have British and American, you might call neocolonialism or free trade uh, imperialism, in which mm. the Latin American countries uh, realize that they can make a lot of money quickly by selling products to um, uh, the Europeans in the United States. And so many Latin American countries become sort of uh, uh, neo-colonies, so politically independent, but economically dependent. 
Uh, And then once Britain uh, uh, with World War II begins to uh, sort of run out of steam, you might say, run out of economic power, uh, the United States becomes uh, a more dominant power. The Latin Americans, I don't want to say realize, but sort of come to the realization, you might say, is that uh, if we want to have economic development, we have to have economic nationalism. And the United Nations is going to be part of this as well with the ECLA, Economic Commission Latin America. Uh, You know, how can we have better terms of trade for our uh, primary source uh, exporting countries. How can we take our, you know, wealth of, of primary sources, where primary resources, primary product resources, you know, minerals uh, and agricultural products, and then use that the proceeds from that to industrialize and become uh, more economically development developed. So, I think that neo-colonial period in which the United States, you know, sort of burst on the world scene in the late nineteenth, early twentieth century, the Spanish-American War, but probably even more importantly, sort of you know, U.S. economic power and and U.S. military occupations of many Caribbean countries, uh, such as Haiti, Dominican Republic. Uh, there's invasions of Cuba after the Spanish-American War, uh, and then also you know, use of troops in Mexico and Honduras. And so the United States becomes, a, you could say from the point of view of Latin American nationalists, a political threat and uh, an economic threat in the early 20th century. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's really important, I think, um, to elaborate on the sort of Latin American development of, of certain concepts that are central to development yeah. theory. Yeah. I mean, we in the Caribbean, like, you know, we've had Arthur Lewis and then right. Lloyd right. Press, yeah. developed uh, plantation theory, which is very, yeah. very similar because right. I think the objective conditions were, were very similar. Right. So, right. so we were coming to similar conclusions, but, right. but, you know, uh, the dependency theory, you know, right. Wallerstein yeah. stuff, yes. you yes. know, and then the linking of like IMF, multi MNCs, yeah. CIA, yeah. right? All right, this right. Yes, exactly. It's like a, well, one is economic, one is you know political, right. and 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 uh, the the neo colonialism, and and then and then the the communism, the left wing, right. the populism, right. indigenism, the right wing yeah. authoritarian, the juntas. It's it's this very interesting. Uh, kind of uh, story, you know, um, in terms of it's it's uh, it's grappling uh, mm-hmm. both politically right. and intellectually, uh, policy wise, with questions of development, and and, and it becomes very tied in uh, to nationalism. Right. Right. Could you right. uh, uh, elaborate on that for us? Right. Yeah, I think that you put it very well, talking about uh, how you know sort of economic nationalism in the early twentieth uh, century, early to mid twentieth century, uh, becomes fused with the political nationalism, with the U.S. you know overt military occupations of many Caribbean and some Central American countries, uh, but then also with the CIA uh, mm-hmm. and uh, covert action. And so I think Latin Americans realize by um, you know the nineteen. 19- 30s, 1940s, 1950s, that uh, the United States uh, presents a sort of multi-pronged power. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. it's economic and political. And so uh, the, the main tool the Latin Americans have, which is uh, an obvious one because of their tradition, is, is nationalism. And so I think nationalism takes its a left-wing turn uh, in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s for the reasons that you just uh, just, just laid out. And then you t- you know you talk about the uh, nationalism and, and populism. Of yeah. course, it's very much tied to you. You mentioned you know 
Argentina and, and there's Peronism. Right yeah. now, people, you know, many people would know it just because of the musical Evita. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but they might not really quite understand right. you know, what, what Peronism is because it was it was kind of um uh, you know, enigmatic. It d- d- right. doesn't fit into the European left-right right spectrum. Right. Uh, right. You know, it, 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 so c- could you sort of uh, explain that phenomenon for people? Yeah, no, I think the basis is, uh, 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 t- or the best way to understand it is really the, the um, changeover, the tra- transition of Latin America as an agricultural uh, country where the largest landowners would own, you know, uh, uh, thousands of hectares of land uh, simply for reasons of political power and status, uh, and it allowed them to control uh, most countries until World War II. But uh, the, the cities were growing rapidly, and World War II is an important part of the story as Latin America exported a lot of oil and foodstuffs uh, to, the, to the allied nations to help them win World War II. With this process came uh, urbanization. With urbanization, you have workers' movements. Uh, you have uh, what we would call reform movements in the United States for better public services and more sort of middle class uh, inspired reforms. How can we have better public education, uh, better infrastructure, basic things such as infrastructure? And so populism kind of, sort of the populace realized uh, that there was a huge demand for, you know, sort of basic services uh, and deepening the industrialization, uh, using economic nationalism to develop a key sectors of the economy, whether it's transportation or banking or whatever. Uh, and so I think that uh, it was sort of like that delay we talked about with uh, you know, uh, Latin American political independence in the early 19th century, but economic uh, independence in the late 20th century. I think that there was uh, such a demand for, you know, urban services and more political power for the urban working and middle classes that the um, populace sort of quickly fit that, filled the bill. They quickly realized that and they said, well, we can offer this to you. Uh, and there was sort of a, so much uh, um, pent up demand for this type of leadership, I think you could say, uh, that uh, the, the um Populism was very powerful in the 1940s uh, and 1950s. One one thing I'd like to add too about about the populism is that uh, one reason it was so um, uh, misunderstood by many people outside of of, uh, of Latin America, outside of South America, outside of the populist countries, uh, is that uh, you know is it communist or is it fascist? The the first world wanted to put it into its own categories. And the Latin Americans yeah. are basically, no, we, we have our own categories for this. Certainly populists appeal to the working class, but they also appeal to the middle class. Uh, and also spoke in very nationalistic terms about sort of national power. You know, Prone is a great example of this, but the many uh, all over Latin America, you know, use the nationalist narrative and nationalist uh, vocabulary uh, to say, you know, the true nationalism or the way to really build national power is through our populist policies. And the, and the populists uh, were... For the, I would say the most part democratic, uh, but but not always. I mean, they sometimes tended towards uh, authoritarianism. But Perón was was elected, and many populists, of course, were elected in other parts of, of Latin America um, at that time. So yeah, there, there's the phenomenon called caudismo, right? Um, right, exactly. Yeah would 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 you would you classify Perón in that um, sort I, of? I, I would. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I guess I see caudillism uh, certainly is not. Um, just um, uh, a part of Latin America, the Latin American experience. It's, it happens all over the world. Mm-hmm. Charismatic, powerful leader, but uh, in Latin America, it's especially powerful because of that 19th century experience where the uh, revolutions against Spain and Portugal were so chaotic, especially against Spain, 
that you know Caudillo's rose with the basic sort of promise of uh, to uh, you know even a small village or or a large city or a large region, you know I will promise you security in exchange for loyalty. You know, don't don't ask any questions about democracy or corruption or you know. Yeah. What, whatever else is going on with me, that's, that's yeah. not important. What's most important is I could offer you security uh, in exchange for your loyalty. Yeah, um, it's kind of and, like a Hobbesian Leviathan period. Exactly, like, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And uh, so I think that that never really goes away. I mean, you know, there's there's periods in Latin American history where a Caudillo, especially World War II, where there's a lot of dislocation, uh, economic dislocation. There's no physical destruction like you have in, in, in Europe or, or Asia, but uh, you have uh, economic dislocation um, and you have controversies over, you know, f- uh, uh, fascist groups uh, in especially the Southern Cone countries. So uh, a Caudillo, someone who basically sort of rides it on his white horse and says, well, I can, I can give you order and stability again. You know, no more of this sort of instability or concern with fascism, concern with communism. Uh, let's just be sort of populistic and nationalistic. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, um, and you spend about, I think is it three chapters in your book speaking about neoliberalism, right, which is very right, important. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, and and one thing that that you raise in your book, which I, I think is important in in general, which is, um, you know, for instance, even with nationalism, uh, it, it it's not me or even globalization, it's not merely passively received by Latin right, America. Right, Latin right, America. Yeah. They are active agents, part and yeah. certainly with neoliberalism, with yeah. Chile. Uh, you know, and although the CIA and the Chicago Boys and all that stuff were were involved, but it right. it still yeah. was kind of you know it did have a strong you know um, the national local component exactly. Yeah. And, and throughout um, throughout the throughout Latin America, I mean, one of the distinctions that um, uh, that we like to make here from from our school of thought in the uh, from the plantation school of thought in the Caribbean mm-hmm. about the difference between um, the Caribbean uh, and the and Latin America generally is that uh, we, in the Caribbean we are colonies of pure exploitation, right? Exactly. Whereas in Latin America they were colonies of conquest, right? And you know that sort of the that old conquistador class, right. that yeah. Spanish class, uh, you know, is definitely tied in to you know neoliberalism becomes a kind of uh, just the latest. Incarnation, right. <laughs> exactly, uh, yeah. in some sort of ways. But yeah, yeah. if you could um, just uh, e- elaborate on on the phenomenon of neoliberalism in Latin America and this Latin American variant, because I myself am very interested the way the term has become so recently popular now, right. even right. in the United States. Right. Whereas, right. You know, as you would know from the 1980s and, and 90s, I mean, we are talking about this. Uh, in development studies all the time. Right. So, yeah. So I'd like to uh, hear you speak about it. Right. Well, I mean, uh, basically, I, I wanted to make the book uh, useful or approachable to people in lots of different disciplines. I'm an historian, so I could I could write about the history, you know, the old history forever. But I wanted to be used in, you know, political science classes and Latin American studies classes, uh, even, econo- uh, you know, economic students and anthropology students could maybe benefit from it. So neoliberalism, I found to be that kind of bridge between uh, what I call the sort of top-down exploitation, as as you talked about, or conquistador Mm -hmm. (laughs) societies and purely exploitative societies of the 19th century, uh, export-driven economies, I think is the term that I use in the late 19th century, uh, that sort of 
idea is basically resurrected uh, in um, the post-Cold War world in the form of uh, neoliberalism. And one reason why it becomes so popular, why I spend so much time on it in my book, is that Latin America goes through its own crisis in the 1970s and 1980s. Uh, in 1970s, there was the Arab dictatorships and the human rights abuses. Uh, 1980s, you have um, the debt crisis uh, and um, economic crises throughout. You know, Latin Americans accumulate a lot of debt in the 1970s for a number of reasons. Interest rates shoot up worldwide in the early 1980s, uh, and they can't pay um, uh, can't maintain their debt. They can't pay interest on their debts, and so some of them come close to defaulting, and the debts have to be uh, rewritten or uh, written off. Uh, and so neoliberalism is something that is turned to by many Latin Americans uh, out of uh, crisis, out of what yeah. else can we do? And, and the first world, of course, pushing it uh, pretty strongly. And so it's, it's easy for many Latin Americans to say, well, we're, we're in a mess here and we don't really have a solution we can think of off the top of our heads. And so maybe we should try neoliberalism since our other policies have not uh, worked out as well as we would if, have. If, uh, if you don't mind me interjecting yeah. here. Sure. Yeah. You know, in, in the history, you know, when we're looking at the West today and their debt crises, yeah. and you see their solution is not austerity, it's QR, <laughs> yeah, exactly. it's more money, right, money, right, right, money yeah, right. debt yeah, exactly. that they never would have accepted in the 1980s. You know, right. they would have chastised Mexico right. or Argentina or Brazil, right. you know, for that. But now, since it happened to them, it's right. like, oh, well, we could print, now there's modern monetary theory. You could print as right. much money as possible. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Not, yeah. Yeah, I remember reading about this actually in graduate school in the late 1980s when I was becoming interested in U.S.-Latin American relations. Uh, and there was an article in the media that, to, uh, that stated it bluntly by saying, you know, what would an IMF policy look like if it was imposed on the United States? It's very easy mm -hmm. for the IMF to impose it on less powerful countries, you know. If you implement uh, an austerity program, you know, third world country, we will give you loans at a lower rate of interest, and then you can use that as a way of sort of digging yourself out of your economic difficulties. But if we were to impose a, a, an austerity plan on the United States in the 1980s, that's when the debt was ballooning um, under, mm -hmm. under Reagan. Yeah. You know, it would have been higher taxes. It would have been cuts to benefits. It would have been cuts to defense, all of which would be anathema to, to virtually everyone in the United States. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it, it's hypocrisy, definitely. <laughs> so. Yeah, but yeah, sorry, I interrupted your story. No, 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 that's Yeah. Yeah, you, yeah, you're talking about the, the you know the neoliberal solution that right. that was being uh, you know offered uh, and prescribed within Latin America. So yeah, if, if you just right like like right. Chile, Chile, you know, you know, is, is seen as uh, I, I guess it was the start starting right. point. Right, I think it? it was. Yeah, and I think what's interesting about uh, uh, neoliberalism, and it's important to understand from the beginning, is that it was uh, something that was done in collaboration with some of the leadership in Latin America. There were many in Latin America who thought, for the reasons I, I mentioned before about the debt crisis and the economic problems of the 70s and the 80s, you know, we really have to come up with a, a whole new game plan here, something totally new. It wasn't new because it went back to the 19th century, you know, export-driven economies. But uh, mm -hmm. to many people in the 21st century, uh, it was new. Yeah. And sort of what flowed out of that, and one reason why I, I spend so much time in the book talking about it is that I think the, the issues of today in the 21st century in Latin America, the Caribbean, largely flow out of neoliberalism not not 100% but but yeah. quite a number of them the inequality or the perceived inequality both within nations and between nations you know inequality is perhaps the 
the, the most dominant issue in the world today, whether it's the first world or the third world. Mm-hmm. And so I think neoliberalism is kind of the, the starting point for that. And now you have uh, leaders in Latin America uh, on the left, but, but others as well, basically saying, okay, we, we have to uh, temper neoliberalism. We have to restrain it. We have to restrict it. We have to you know, yeah. uh, channel it in a way that's benefit, beneficial to ourselves. We can't simply accept it you know, lock, stock, and barrel, as we did in the 1990s, because now we have uh, inequality. And, and also, uh, when, uh, coming back to globalization, the, the Latin American economies have perceived to have been perhaps too open uh, economically mm-hmm. and culturally. One example I, I like to talk about, since I used to live in Bolivia and did a lot of my research there and have written on U.S. relations with, uh, with Bolivia, is the example of uh, fast food, which becomes popular in Latin America because everyone likes uh, you know, fried burgers and fried potatoes. Mm-hmm. Uh, McDonald's was um, kept out of Bolivia for years because they refused to use Bolivian potatoes, where, of course, any history student knows the, the potato was developed in the Andes in yeah. Bolivia and Peru. And so mm-hmm. basically the Bolivian government said to McDonald's, you, you have to use Bolivian potatoes, otherwise we're not allowing you in. McDonald's didn't agree to that because of their own supply chain and their own uh, uh, feelings of, of power, <laughs> you might yeah. say. And so they weren't allowed in. And then eventually they were allowed in and then they were they left again because of uh, you know, it sort of represents a symbol of, of multinational power and, and also uh, U.S. culture. So I think that uh, uh, the the ex- I don't want to say extreme openness, but the vi- the very open nature of of the uh, Latin American economies, and also with you know uh, cultural globalization happening very quickly in the 21st century, many Latin American nations are uh, trying to you know put a damper on that, trying to limit the influence of outside forces on their economies and cultures. Right. You know, up to this point, we've been speaking about Latin America as a, you know, a unified whole without right. any yeah. contradictions or differences. And of course, we, yeah. we know that's not right. right. Yeah. You know, what, what are, you know, what would be, I'll tell you from my perspective as a non-specialist, right? But, but yeah. an, an observer, you know, yeah. like, um, things like, uh, you know, Argentina, you know, up to the 1920s being considered a developing a developed right. country like Canada right. yeah. or yeah. Australia, uh, uh, in, so so that difference there, and, and you mentioned in the the beginning of your book, you know Bolivia and that football match, and right. you know, right, yeah, uh, you know, so that the difference is, you know, the Argentinian superiority complex, right, is right. That <laughs> yes, right, exactly, <laughs> and yeah. uh, and then like the whole Brazil, of course, being poor, you know, Portuguese. Uh, right. And and you know so I've you know I remember speaking to a Brazilian ambassador here once and he, and he was uh, pointing out you know there are more people that speak Portuguese in South America than Spanish you know <laughs> <laughs> right yeah which is true yeah that's exactly <laughs> um, and, and then all the interesting history of port port uh, of uh, Brazil in terms of like it was an empire you know right. they, they they had a, a an emperor. For a while and stuff that that's very interesting. Then yeah. you have like the contradictions of like Guyana and Suriname right. being kind Caribbean culturally, right. Right. but yeah. geographically on South America. Uh, you know, then you have your wars between um, different uh, you know uh, countries. I guess border wars. I, I'm I'm not even very clear on a lot of those stuff. Right. I just know they exist right. and they happen. Right. And yeah. then you have some of the, the later stuff, which kind of uh, overturns sort of national boundaries, like migration, um, and then, you know, drugs and organized crime. So, so all these things, I know, complicate 
the issue. I'd like to know you as a specialist, which do you think are, are some of the, the most important and interesting, uh, you know, complications to, to note, so, you know, in terms of, uh, yeah, complication or contradictions in understanding the complexity of Latin America? Right. Well, one I'd like to return to that that you mentioned yourself, which I think is a a very good way of looking at it, is that some uh, uh, countries, uh, especially in the Caribbean, but you could probably find examples in mainland Latin America as well, were under the in the colonial period were pure exploitation, and and you know the the Haitian Mm -hmm. Revolution of eighteen o three is one one response to that, whereas uh, the. Uh, economies of the larger Latin American countries were more economies of, uh, or it was more of a situation of conquest, as you say. Mm-hmm. And there was uh, more economic development that happened indigenously and perhaps was spurred on by uh, outside uh, capital, like uh, you know the British investment of railroads in Argentina and, mm-hmm. and lots of other uh, economic endeavors. So I think that those two historical trajectories are very different. And I think that's one reason why uh, you know, neoliberalism becomes quite popular in South America, Mexico, and Central America in the 1980s, 1990s, and, and even beyond. Whereas I think in the Caribbean, because of that history of exploitation, of pure exploitation, as you put it, neoliberalism, once the neoliberalism idea was uh, created in, you know, the, the late 20th century, I think many people in the Caribbean uh, did not accept it or yeah. backed away from it or, or saw it for what it was. Uh, you know, this is just a return to the pure exploitation. We'll have none of it. Yeah, um, so I, that, yeah. Just to clarify, yeah. the, the pure exploitation, what, what is meant by that is that the owners of capital didn't even live in, right. in the place, exactly. right? It was just yeah. overseas investors. Right. So right. They, they didn't care. They didn't build universities right. Right. or school yeah. like they might have done in Mexico right. or right. Brazil or Argentina yeah. or yeah. even the American colonies. Yeah. It, it yeah. Was just, but, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But but there are some countries in um, uh, in South America yeah. or, or Latin America that might fit that model. For example, mm. in Bolivia, one reason for the Bolivian Revolution of 1952 was that the owners of capital, as you say, lived in Europe and the United States. Right. And the, the people that were running them were just beholden to the outside um, capitalist powers, as it were. And I think okay. you could say the same thing about um, uh, Guyana, too, uh, mm-hmm. that yeah. you had with the, with the um, – Aluminum mines. Uh, what is the box with the bauxite mines? Yeah, and also right. with a lot of the other uh, economic endeavors there. Well, we consider Guyana Caribbean yeah, part of the Caribbean. Right? <laughs> yes, no, exactly. That's true. Yes, uh, but but anyway, I think your point is is uh, a really good one. Mm-hmm. Um, one. One thing I would like to maybe this is going a bit tangential is that you know when you write a book, you want to have like a coherent narrative, especially right. if it's a That's student right. oriented book. I don't want to call mm-hmm. it a textbook because it's not comprehensive, but it's a student oriented book, right? There's study questions at the end and lists of readings for the, to help the students. Um, yeah. and, and I wanted a book that could be used in Latin American studies and, and political mm-hmm. science and history. You know, so, so uh, I think at the end of the book, if I was to, to re- do a second edition, I would talk more about something that you mentioned previously, and that's the incredible growth of China. And China's right. importance, uh, uh, or I should say Asia's importance in Latin America, I mean, there's large Asian populations going back to the 19th century, especially in the West Coast of, of Central America uh, and South America. But but more apropos to what's going on today, you know, Chinese investment, uh, Japanese investment uh, is increased dramatically in the last um, few years. And, and focusing on China for a minute, there's this, uh, you know, different type of economic development Mm-hmm. Uh, 
modernization <laughs> or, yeah. said, or modernization inspired economic development. I mean, it's communist. It's largely state run. Uh, it's not uh, certainly no believer, no believers. They, and the, uh, you know, the, the, the magic of the private sector to sort of mm-hmm. unleash, uh, you know, uh, uh, a, a human economic endeavor, right? Yeah. And so I think that, you know, in my book, I, I mentioned China maybe at the end, but I think that, you know, now, or even going back to the late 20th century, the Latin Americans have uh, two different narratives. They have the sort of Western economic development, which, you know, we all learn about in, in school. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but you know, I tell the students when I'm teaching, you know, U.S. foreign relations, when I was your age, China was an underdeveloped country and they, yeah. they can't believe it right <laughs> it's like yeah. uh, you know it really was you know children are starving in china right right, right. yes exactly exactly yeah. so that, that and and for china to develop as it has so quickly has really blown the minds of many people uh in the western world and of course the latin americans have picked up on this and so they in some ways are perhaps uh using the chinese model uh and the western model uh both. They're sort of mixing and matching. They're kind of, you know, yeah. uh, especially with the financial crisis in the Western world, largely in the Western world, 2008 through 2010, a number of developing world countries or non-industrialized countries were looking at the Chinese model simply for the reason, well, they didn't experience that crash. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe they have some some better answers than the sort of, you know, traditional Western uh, style of economic development. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, kind yeah. of similar to the 1930s with the Soviet Union. Right. When yes, people exactly. Yeah. yeah. I said, well, you know, they didn't go through that uh, crash. Right. And, and, you, and you know yeah. what? Um, uh, I don't know if uh, I don't know the figures for sure. Uh, maybe you can confirm. But I mean, in in the region, uh, the IDB is the major lender. The Inter-American right. Development yeah. Bank. Yeah. Uh, for development projects, right? Even yeah. more than the World Bank usually and stuff. But yeah. um, and th- I remember looking at some figures uh, a couple of years ago, where you know China's loans have exceeded the IDB by right. far. Right. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And so I mean, so China by far is the largest uh, investor in Latin America from those yeah. figures I've seen. I don't know if if uh, you know if they need to if that needs to be qualified in any way. But I know the you know the debate uh, in a similar thing is in Africa, for example, and there's a whole mm. debate about you know yeah. Chinese imperialism in Africa and right. in, right. in the Caribbean. We have that uh, you know debate and discussion as well. In Latin America, is is there such a um, debate? Uh, I wouldn't say is it's uh, as uh, open or overt as it is in Africa, but yeah, yeah I think yeah. There, there is a there is a debate because, uh, and I think it comes back to those two different models of economic development. Certainly, most of Latin America are still wedded to the Western uh, view of economic development because, of course, Latin America, you know, was developed uh, along the lines of European and North American, uh, you know, the economy uh, and society in society even up through the 20th century, and so. Uh, China has kind of come late to the game, you might say, but uh, and it's not really clear. I think Latin Americans are still sorting out: uh, is a Chinese investment just because they want uh, more access to soybean exports? <laughs> you know, yeah. is it just based on sort of resources, or is it more kind of an ideological offensive? You know, is it yeah. in which are they really trying to expand their power? Um, I can I can only think of one sort of specific example of. Uh, I don't want to say it was a radar station, but I think it was some sort of telescope uh, in um, 
either in Chile or Argentina in the border, you know, in a very desolate, uh, right. not non-populated part of, of South America, there's a, a Chinese telescope, uh, or at least built built with Chinese money with some Chinese influence over its uh, its management. Is that being used as a listening station? So, you know, so right. that's sort of one, one, one way that perhaps Latin Americans are becoming cognizant of China's interest in expanding its uh, its influence. But I think it's really too too early to tell. You know, I mean, I think some Latin Americans might conclude, and probably the majority, that you know China is interested because of soybeans because it's so, such an important part of the Chinese diet. Yeah, and, and Latin America has, has a perfect uh, parts of Latin America. South America has a perfect. Um, uh, you know, climate for growing them, producing them, and already before the Chinese were interested, were already you know growing a lot of soya for for edible oil, livestock. Yeah. yeah, livestock. You're right, exactly. So once the Chinese sort of figure out how to get access to enough foodstuffs, maybe they're going to lose interest in in Latin America, but maybe not. <laughs> so that's that's the question. <laughs> so well, you, you brought up uh, the Japanese a, a couple of times, and you, I know you end your book on a, on the right. note <laughs> the Japanese uh, musician. Yeah. But, um, uh, you know, one thing. Uh, this might be tangential, but but I'll use the opportunity to ask you. You know, when Alberto Fujimori was yeah. uh, president of Peru, that like totally shocked me. I mean, right. I didn't even yeah. know there was a Japanese right. uh, community in Peru, yeah. let alone yeah. they're so I don't know so integrated that that right. that you know he was president and it, it didn't seem like a that right. big a deal. Right. <laughs> it's right. like, um, yeah, and that, and and, you know, and the Japanese aren't known to be, you know, like the Chinese are all over the place in right, Indonesia right, yeah. and in every, you know, you could go to to any outpost in in Africa even, and you'll see a Chinese restaurant somewhere. Right. The Japanese aren't, <laughs> aren't right, like not, that. right, right. I think that well, the Japanese populations in um, in Latin America are concentrated in just a few countries, and Peru is one of them. And also, I think Peru is somewhat exceptional in the sense that the Japanese have been there for three generations or more. And Fujimori was a third generation Japanese, yeah, uh, uh, Peruvian. Uh, but I think it's that important. Was what, what was the, the origin of that migration? Because that's uh, I guess part of the globalization theme. Yeah. Uh, in, in uh, good question. I mean, I'm guessing maybe fishing or maybe infrastructure building. Okay. Uh, oh, in the dislocation of you know when uh, Japan went through its major restoration uh, in the late 19th century and, and industrialized, there was you know people who left at that time, but I'm not really sure of why okay. they came in the in the first place. But I think in perhaps in Latin America, I was living in Bolivia when he was when he was president, and you know a number of the Latin American leaders, well the Bolivian leader uh, uh, Sanchez uh, Lozada. Uh, he spoke uh, Spanish with sort of an American accent because he right. lives in the United States for so long. And a number of Latin American countries have elites who are trained overseas or lived overseas. Mm-hmm. And so they seem, yet they're accepted, you know, as as legitimate, you know, nationalist leaders of their countries. So I think Fujibori actually was more nationalist than they because he spoke with a Peruvian accent. He didn't right. speak with a gringo accent. <laughs> and also he was just very good at sort of, um, you know, wearing the, the proper dress and he knew the customs, he knew the music. He had sort of immersed in himself in, in, yeah. in Peruvian culture, I think from a young age, it, just because, I mean, obviously he had political designs, but also I think just because he liked it. That's what yeah. was familiar to him. I mean, third so, generation, I mean, it's not, it's right. like, you know, that, that was yeah. his culture. Yeah. 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 And, and also interestingly, he sort of fit the role of the Caudillo quite well. I mean, you talked yeah. about Caudillo. Yeah. Uh, he was someone who came in democratically elected, but then he he, uh, I don't know what you say, performed or staged what the Peruvians call the autogolpe, the self-coup. Yes. He basically shut down Congress and ruled by decree because he said uh, 
well, there is a national crisis, mainly because of the Sendero Luminoso, uh, which was mm-hmm. a threat to many in the countryside. Uh, he, he used that as a way of, of consolidating and expanding his, his power. So, yeah, no, yet another example of the diversity, um, ethnic diversity uh, of Latin America, like you say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, um, I, we're, we're coming in close to the yeah. end of our interview. Yeah. But I, so I, uh, I want to ask, you know, we, we've touched on a lot of different themes, but if, if, yeah. you, if, you, if there's a main message that you'd like, you know, readers to get from your examination of Latin American nationalism and globalization, what, what would it be? Well, I guess uh, coming back to what I said before about how Latin American nationalism is very complex and interesting. It has a left-wing variant and a right-wing variant. Sometimes they fight with each other. Sometimes one is dominant, the other is uh, uh, submerged. Uh, so I think that's one thing that makes it especially interesting uh, thing to study. But also, uh, just picking up on the, uh, the Japanese example uh, at the end, if we're looking at sort of outside influences on Latin America, I think and this probably happens around the world, but I mean, if you come in and you're very overt about trying to spread your influence, like the United States, especially during the Alliance for Progress years in the 1960s, but still today, you know, the Agency for International Development, USAID building in La Paz, mm-hmm. Bolivia, is the, one of the largest buildings in, in that part of, of La Paz. And it's, the, and it's, it's a, a, a dominant presence, uh, AID is a dominant presence throughout the Andean region. It's a very openly uh, perceived one. Whereas the Japanese... Uh, they built the entire garbage removal uh, program for La Paz, Bolivia. Bill- millions of dollars, right? Right. And they, they don't have a huge, uh, you know, sort of visible presence. I mean, That's right. there's not even a picture of a Japanese flag on uh, <laughs> on the garbage bins, right? I mean, yeah. But, but everybody knows it because you know the Andes in many parts of Latin America is a it's a it's a verbal culture. It's an oral culture, and so word yeah. spreads fast. And so, I think that influence actually could be subtly more. Um, uh, accepted and it would not provoke a nationalist response, uh, as opposed to when you have the United States or, or other countries coming in. Uh, perhaps the Chinese are being fairly overt as well, at least in Africa, not so much in Latin America. That that sort of overt sort of you know, uh, we as an outside power are here to try and improve you and change you and make you like us. That's going to create a nationalistic reaction. Whereas if outside powers are more subtle. Uh, it won't. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, I know that, that's an important observation. Yeah. yeah, and also the European Union is very good about uh, subtly trying to help out Latin Americans, uh, like the the health service uh, in in many parts of Bolivia is run by uh, um, some Scandinavian countries, and right. everyone knows it. But if you, you you don't see, except for a small European Union flag, you don't see the presence you know on the health clinics uh, in Bolivia or other parts of of, of uh, South America. So. Yeah. Good, good. And I know, I mean, this book was, was written in, well, published in 2017. So right. since, I mean, are you working on any other projects right now that you'd like our audience to know about? Yeah, well, I've been really interested in uh, the drug war, uh, sort of mm-hmm. coming uh, uh, coming out of the last point that I made. Uh, the way the United States and other countries as well, Brazil is part of the drug war as well, uh, in other countries, uh, has been a sort of overt use of force. Uh, you know, how can we suppress the production of the of the plants, which are the raw materials for for the production of of illegal narcotics, and that's created a sort of anti-American backlash and perhaps a nationalistic backlash. And so, I guess I'm looking at nationalism again, but in this case, as part of a sort of effort to um, you know suppress and control the drug trade, which ultimately results in spending lots and lots of resources and not really solving the problem, which I find to be an interesting sort of dynamic of, yeah. of you know, ex- excessive use of force and expenditure of billions, maybe even trillions of dollars, and 
not that much to show for it. So yeah. perhaps not an uplifting story, but I think an interesting one. Yeah, <laughs> an, important. <laughs> an important one. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you so much for this interview. It's been really informative and enjoyable. It's been a pleasure. Yes. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure as well. And I very much admire the, the new book network for, for all that it's doing. All right. Great. Well, once again, the book is Latin American Nationalism, Identity in a Globalizing World. And we've been speaking to the author, James Siegmeier. Thanks also to you, our listeners. Make sure you sign up for our notifications so you don't miss any new interviews on this channel in future. I look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Thank you.